Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the Book of Romans, Pastor Murphy showed us that the believer can be absolutely sure of his eternal security because of God's infinite love for us. Today, we'll review some important principles about the depth of God's love. We will be looking at verses number 7 to 8 as our text. And uh, before I do that, we would be reading from verse number 1, and then we'll come to our text. Romans chapter 5, verse number 1. Apostle write to the Roman believers, and uh, in verse number one, we have his words. He said, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation work of patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet, peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Let's pray. Father, we approach you as we always do, acknowledging our incapacity and our inability to handle the word as thoroughly as we should. We're handed, hand, handling sacred treasure. And because we're handling something that's not just human, but divine, there's always a fear and trembling about whether we would do justice to the exposition of your word. We ask for your help tonight, and we ask for your wisdom to be imparted. We pray that you will give that help that is needed that in the process of communicating your truth, it finds lodging in the hearts of those who sit before the pulpit. The Holy Spirit that you have sent called the Comforter, the Paraclete. His mission has been proscribed in your words. He will convict the world of sin and of judgment and of righteousness. And so we recognize that there's going to be any conviction, any pursuit of righteousness, any sense of the awe of divine judgment, it will not be an act of man. It will be the working of your Holy Spirit. 
And therefore, we, we bow to his authority. We acknowledge his promised presence with us. And we plead for your help and your aid as we go into scripture. Lord, we move the distractions from our minds. What we plan to do when we leave here, where we're going to go, what we're going to do. Uh, perhaps even entertaining what kind of job or work we have on Monday. And it's very possible that we can be doing our calculations in our mind when the word is being preached. Help us not to do such disservice to your word and to the meeting that we're having tonight about you and about scripture. Help us to give our undivided attention to what the Bible says, to listen to your voice and to have an inner prayer. Lord, speak to me, show me your truth. And if I comprehend your truth and understand your truth and grasp your truth, I will obey your truth and follow your truth and believe your truth. May this be the simple prayer of our hearts. I ask you now to help, and I pray, Lord, that you guide, and I pray that all that is said and done this evening would be profitable and edifying and challenging and heart-provoking and elevate our thoughts to that divine love that is so supreme and infinite that he would love us so much that he sent his son to die in our place to pay our price and be a substitute for our death. Thank you, thank you, thank you. May this be the gratitude that flows from our hearts this evening. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're back in the book of Romans. And as you know, we've been studying this book now for quite some time. And we've been doing a systematic study of this book, uh, virtually a verse-by-verse -verse study, uh, dealing with it and dealing with topics as those topics occur. Chapter 5 is one of the great chapters of this book. Almost every chapter in the book of Romans, uh, you can say it's a great chapter. But you can be speaking in terms of hyperbole to keep saying everything is great. But this is one of the great chapters, no question about the book of Romans. Beginning in Romans chapter 5 and running through right through until Romans uh, chapter 8. The Apostle Paul is dealing with one major theme. Now remember the book of Romans is very simple to remember its outline. In the first chapter, the Apostle Paul introduces his theme, which is the gospel. And of course, if the gospel is glad tidings, what is this glad tidings about? The next thing the Apostle Paul does is man's human guilt before God. That's why you need a gospel. So he talks about sin in chapters 1 and 2. He shows that the entire world is guilty before God. He explains that the Gentiles are guilty because when they knew God, they did not worship God. And how did they know God, by the way? He said that the stars, the moon, the creation shows the eternal godhood and power. This is God's natural revelation. What you see is a display of the fact that God exists. And any man that can look himself in the mirror and say it just happened, God would be a fool. There's no bigger fool than a man to say that. Because the smallest cell in your body is more complicated than the most complex computer that man can create. So how you can believe that we can create, uh, you know, if I were to tell you 
that the computer just happened. You call me a fool and an idiot, an ignoramus. But when you have something far more complex than a computer, then you tell me it just happened by chance. Who's the bigger fool now? So he shows that the Gentiles are guilty because God has given them natural revelation. They can see by what is there that someone made this. It just couldn't happen. I'm not going to argue that. That's another this. But then he shows that the Jews are also guilty before God. Why? They not only had the natural revelation, they had special revelation. God gave them something called the Old Testament covenant. So in a very real way, the Jews had more information and more revelation than the Gentiles. But what did they do with that revelation? We all know the story. It was an enormous failure on their part where it did not benefit them. As a fact, they went into unbelief. So much unbelief that when the Messiah come, they crucified their own Messiah. And we Gentiles are serving that Messiah that is really the Jew. And even today, the Jew is saying he's an imposter. Yet, when you go through the Bible, God has been sending snapshots throughout the Bible. Every prophet tells you, when the Messiah comes, this is what he will do. This is what he will look like. And yet, when the Messiah came, they missed it all because of unbelief. So the Gentile is guilty. The Jew is guilty. And then there's a marvelous chapters in chapters 3 and 4 when Paul explains now, how does God solve this problem? Of man's human guilt. And Paul explains that God solved the problem by sending his son to die in man's place as a substitute. And then not only dying, but having died, he takes Christ's righteousness and he puts it on man and makes man righteous. So that when he looks upon me, even though I'm a sinner, he doesn't treat me as a sinner. He treats me as though I have the same righteousness as his son. That's the great miracle of redemption. Wonderful. Nothing in this world could compare. Everything pales in relation to this. But now, so you've got the sinner. You've got salvation. What's the next thing that we need to be concerned about is how secure are we? The pastor, now that I've put my faith and trust in Christ, how secure am I? Can I lose it? What do I do to need to keep it? And the book of Romans Chapter 5 up to chapter 8 goes to check mark after check mark, giving you reason after reason why the believer is completely, absolutely secure. That's what the book chapter 5 is mainly about. Then we'll come to chapter 6, chapter 7. But that's the main thing. He's piling up argument upon argument upon argument that you can know that you are secure once you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And what Paul does in chapter number 5 is that he starts listing reasons for our security. The first one he tells you, of course, you're justified. Now, justify is a legal forensic term. What it means is that the moral God of the universe declares the sinner righteous when the sinner puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He declares us righteous. We are not righteous in ourselves. He removes our sin and then he gives us Christ and he says, you are righteous. I treat you as though you're not guilty. Well, what gives him the authority to do that? He's God. He's God. So the believer is justified. And then Paul says, as a result of being, he said, we've got peace with God. The, The war is over. He's granted us an amnesty. 
And we're no longer at war with God any longer. Sir, madam, if you're at war with God, I want to tell you, God put down the arms a long time. He, he put his sword in the scabbard. For the time his son died, he put his sword in the scabbard and said, listen, I want you to know is to come to this peace agreement and stop the hostility. And then Paul says, we not only have justified and peace of God, then Paul says we have access into grace. So if you think you can't hold out, if you think the pressure is too much for you, he said, I've opened a door of grace that no matter what you face, you have sufficient grace to endure. Access to grace. And then he tells us we've got the certainty of the hope of the glory of God. That's what the word hope in the New Testament is about. It's not that I I hope to get it. It's always an I anticipate it coming. It's not a hope so. It's a certainty. And Paul says we've got that absolute certainty of the glory of God. One day, you and I are going to share in the glory of God. We are going to manifest that. We will not be gods. We will never be gods. But we will be like him. See? Always subordinate to him. But we will share in his glory. And then the apostle Paul adds to that. One of the great proofs that we are safe and secure. And absolutely um, secure is that he said that. The way we handle tribulation. Whatever the devil throws at us. The believer is able to triumph over tribulation. And Paul explains why that is possible. Because Paul said, now, it is possible because at that juncture, when you can't see God, when you read the scripture and God is still oblivious to you, Paul said, at that juncture, God sheds his love abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. A subjective experience of the indwelling Holy Spirit working in your life when you're going through that kind of tribulation. So Paul is not only talking about theoretical knowledge. He's talking about experiential, subjective experience. That when you're going through tribulation and you're so overwhelmed by it, God pours his love into your heart. And you come to the point saying, listen, God loves me. I can't explain that he loves me. I'm sure he loves And sometimes, by the way, he does some things for you when you're going through tribulation. That you know that's only a result of his love. We cited some experiential examples of that in the lives of the saints. And we're not going to travel that. But here's the point. Having now come to this matter of God's love. The Apostle Paul's fertile mind. Begins to develop a thought. I need to develop and expand and elaborate now on this love. And this is now where he begins to show us. In this fifth case. That one of the great proofs and one of the great evidences and the great reasons that you know that you're eternally secure is because of the kind of love that God showed to you even before you were Christian. That's amazing. So what the Apostle Paul is doing now is showing to the believer that long before you came to faith in Christ, God loved you when you were in a vile, vulgar condition. And when there was nothing in you to love, God sent his son to die for you. What man of love is this? So if God loved me when I was a sinner, how can I lose his love now that I'm his child? That's the argument. The apostle Paul is always a man that uses logic. 
And so his arguments always have some logical base. They always bring you to some terminal point where you can understand what he's saying. Because, by the way, if you read this passage, you don't really see the connection. You might almost think that Paul is preaching to people who are not Christians. That was an evangelistic message. But it is in the area where Paul is dealing with the security of the believer and the certainty of that security. And now he's bringing in the love of God to show you that clearly God's love for you existed before you even were Christian. And if he showed that love to you when you were a sinner and ungodly, how will he take away that love for you now that you become his child? Does that make sense to you? So when you begin to understand the depths of God's love, the reach of God's love, the expanse of God's love, the weight of God's love, then you begin to understand, oh man, I am on solid foundation. I am secure in him and in Christ. So what Paul does, and the verses that we looked at last week, it was verses 6 to 11. In these six verses, the apostle Paul does two things. Number one, he gives us one of the greatest expositions of love you can find in the Bible. There's one greater than this in chapter number eight. But this is one of the great expositions of divine love. You find that in verses six to eight. Let's look at it again very quickly. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet said, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the point. Paul is saying clearly, he's going to explain and elaborate on this love that God has for the believer. And then in verse number 9 to 10, he draws certain deductions. He comes to certain conclusions. If it is true that God loved me this way, what can I conclude? Well, look at what he said in verse number 9. Much more than being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from what? Wrath. There's no wrath for you any longer. It's gone. See? When Christ tasted death for you, hell no longer applies to you. We no longer will face divine wrath. Why? He faced it for us. See? So you can't now punish me for what he was punished for. It's called double jeopardy. In the law courts. So that is one of my deductions. The apostle Paul says. There's no divine wrath any longer for me. If I'm in Christ Jesus. And then if you look carefully at verse number 10. He says. For if when we were enemies. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more being reconciled. We shall be saved. Through his life. So my salvation not dependent on me. How I live. My salvation is dependent on the fact that the living Christ has redeemed me and he's alive before God forevermore. See? So not only do I not have to face divine wrath, I can be guaranteed that I will be eternally saved by the life of the living Christ. See? By the way, you see why Muhammad can't help anybody? Muhammad dead. See? You see why all the Hindu gods can't help anybody? They don't even exist. But the living Christ is in him you find life and not just like you find eternal life. This is Paul's argument in this passage. So the goal of the Apostle Paul in those verses is that we may grasp the extent and the nature and the character of God's love 
so that we can rest in the conclusion or we can deduce from that that there's no wrath for us and uh, therefore we are safe because of Christ and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we began to look at the passage and we started to extract certain principles about this whole matter of salvation and the believer in God's love. The first principle we looked at last time is that clearly from this passage, human salvation is entirely dependent on God's love reaching down to us. I repeat, human salvation is entirely dependent on God's love reaching down. In other words, God is the prime mover when it comes to this matter of redemption. He is active, he is not passive. He initiates the plan of redemption. He devises a program of redemption and he engineers how it will be accomplished. But remember, it's only out of God's gratuitous love and out of God's profound grace that he concocted the program of redemption for mankind and therefore salvation from beginning to the end is all dependent on God and not upon man. He is the one that started it. He's the one that continues it and he's the one that will finish. You remember what Paul says? He which has done what? Begun a good work in you. No, you didn't do it. He begun a good work in you. And I want people to understand this. There's nobody in here that is saved except God worked in your life. God had to convict you and bring you to a point where you recognize you needed Christ. There had to be the convicting word of the Holy Spirit. If there was no convicting work of the Holy Spirit, I'm saying to you, as you sit here tonight, you have no lot in this matter. He which has begun a good work in you will perform it when? Until the day. So he not only starts it, he continues, and then he's going to finish it. God doesn't start anything he doesn't finish. And he's never involved in unfinished jobs. So the first principle that we had is that Redemption, salvation, begins with God in terms of his love. The second thing that we point out to you, I'm coming to the subject just now. The Apostle Paul, in the second principle, he showed that God's love, us, when we were helpless and hopeless and hostile to him. And by the way, this is why Paul spends so much time describing the character of the, uh, the person who was uh, lost in this chapter. And he points out three things about us. And Paul points out, number one, that when God found us, we were what? Without strength. Look at it again. For when we were yet without strength. See? When God came down and God began to reach into our lives, we had no strength to turn to him. I repeat, we had no strength to turn to him. As a matter of fact, we were not even looking for him. Some of you got saved because there was a chick in the church you came to see. Yeah, people get saved that way, you know that? Coming to church, I want to see these, these, these nice Christians. 
And there's some people who just come to church to find a girl. And guess what? They hear the gospel and God opened their eyes and they, they turn to the Lord. I, I've known people like that. I don't know if you've known people. Like, you have not heard anybody give a testimony. Like that. I, didn't, I really didn't come for the gospel. I came for the girls. And I left with the gospel and left the girls. See, miracle of grace. See, see. Your motive is wrong. And it doesn't have to be right when God finds you because you were without strength. See. And then Paul says in verse number 6, not only were we without strength, we were ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. And thirdly, in verse number 8, he says, Christ died for sinners. So we were without strength, we were ungodly, and we were sinners. And we began to elaborate on that. The first one without strength has to do with our ability. That when God found us, we are at the point where we had no ability. And I mentioned to you that we didn't have ability. We were without strength in three areas. Number one, we had no ability to understand the gospel. The natural man understandeth not the things of the spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. The unsaved man thinks that what we are talking is nonsense. He can't grasp what we're saying. He has blinders on his eyes. He can hear the same thing you hear, but it never gets a loss between his ears. And that's why the Bible said the natural, because the things of God are understand by uh, spiritual. You need the spirit of God to open your eyes to truth. So our inner capacity related to our understanding I think I've told you this before and it's worth repeating. It just came to my mind. When I was teaching secondary school at Ellerslie in Barbados, Ellerslie Secondary School, I had a brilliant guy who was a language expert. Brilliant in languages, French and so on and so forth. And I remember I would be out after, when we had the, the, the lunch break and or whatever, I'd be out, eat my lunch very fast, I'd be reading my Bible. And he would come and he'd sit by and I'll never forget a conversation I had with him. I said, I said, you know, he, I asked him if he's a Christian, he's not a Christian. And then he says, and he says, he says you know, he said, I read that Bible, but I don't understand that Bible. I said, my granny can teach you that Bible. A person who's never been to university, never been to secondary school, barely gone to the primary school, who is saved and have the indwelling spirit can teach the expert because he can't understand it. What's the difference? Because the unsaved man doesn't have the capacity to comprehend biblical truth. It takes the spirit of God to open the eyes of men. So they be. And by the way, was that not true of you before you got saved? Did you not hear the gospel several times? And you probably understand, man, this is nonsense. It doesn't make any sense to me. Why, why in the world would I do something like that? And then you come back and you know what? And then one day, one day, it became so clear to you, you could not do anything else but get saved. What's the difference? It's an encounter where God, the Holy Spirit, has now worked in your life and begin to remove the scales from your eyes so you begin to see truth that you've never seen it before. That's why Paul said, before we were converted, we were without strength. We had no natural ability to comprehend scripture. Number two, we had no ability to please God. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. 
They that are ruled by the principles of the flesh. Go into Galatians chapter 5 and see what are the works of the flesh. Those that pursue the flesh cannot please God. But then Paul said, but you're not in the flesh, you're in the spirit. So we not only don't have the ability to comprehend and understand spiritual truth. We don't have the capacity to please God if we are not believers in Christ. Nothing you do before you were a Christian counts with God. Everything cancels out. You can do the best thing in the world. It doesn't matter. Because everything you touch, everything you do is tarnished with the wrong motive. That's your heart. It's an evil heart. Yo, you may be seen to be doing good things, but your motive is wrong. It's either you're going to benefit somehow. You see, you're showing kindness to other people. But you're, you're, you're doing, it's like people, by the way, it's, I don't want to use an illustration here that might seem offensive. But the people who target old people, you know that? When their family don't take care of them, they target old people and they go in and they think, and you know what happens in a case like that? Normally when an old person has land or property and you're the last person to take care of them, guess who get the land or property? Most of the times you get it. And then the children say, but wait a minute, that's my mommy. But you didn't have time for money in the final days. Somebody else had. And there are people who target people like that. They have ulterior motives. They're doing good things. You're saying good things are good things. But the ulterior motive is all wrong. Everything an unsaved man does. Or an unsaved woman does. Is tarnish. Tarnish. With some intention that is not noble. There's some selfish element in it. I don't care what it is. The selfish element. So we are without ability to please God. And then we also don't have the ability to obey God. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2, you know how it describes the, the, the non-Christian? It's called the children of disobedience. In other words, it's as though disobedience is our mother and produce children that are disobedient. That's the language. It, it's a pictorial language. The, the Hebrews always thought in pictures. So they're not going to say that you are disobedient. To make it even worse, your nature is because you come from a mother who was disobedient and you will be disobedient. That's what you're called the sons of disobedience. It's in your, it's in your grain, in your character, in your personality that you just disobey God. That is how helpless you were and I was before I came to Christ. Before the bondage of sin and the tyranny of sin was broken in my life and in your life, that's how we were. We had no ability. But then the Apostle Paul not only talks about not having the ability, but he talks about our attitude towards God. It's a wrong attitude. He calls this attitude ungodly. And I pointed out to you that there are three things about that very quickly. Number one, it means that when I'm ungodly, it means that I'm unlike God. And of course, what that means is that I no longer bear the image of God. The image of God is, is cracked. It doesn't reflect any longer because the, the cracked image now gives a distorted image of who God is. It gives a false picture of God. It's like a leaning column that you see in the sea that there was a great civilization and then it collapsed. But then you see this leaning column still in the sea. It's still there, but it does, it's supposed to be upright. So man... Is ungodly because he's unlike God. He was designed by God to reflect God. When you, when you saw Adam, 
your first thought was going to God. When you see man today, did your thought ever run to God? As a matter of fact, one of the worst things you could ever tell a child is that his daddy, God is like his daddy. You tell a child like that, he, he can't comprehend that. Well, daddy doesn't take care of my books. Daddy hardly is home. Daddy, uh, you know. He doesn't understand the picture of God any longer because daddy is no longer reflecting God. A distortion. So we were ungodly. That means we were unlike God. Number two, it also means that we're ungodly in the sense that we don't love God. Did I hear, did, did you hear what I just tell you? If you're an uncaged, unsafe person, I want to say to you that you don't love God. Pastor Murphy, how can you say something like that? Well, look at what verse number 10 says. For when we were what? Enemies. You ever know an enemy that love the object of his hostility? So just in clear, we might entertain the idea that that's not true. He said we were enemies before we were Christians. And then, of course, I pointed out to you that in the book of uh, Psalms chapter 10, it says of the unsaved man, it says that the wicked, God is not in his thoughts. God is not in his thoughts. That means that he goes to every day and he never even think of looking at the God and think that God exists. Father, I thank you for life. I thank you for the job I've got. I thank you for my wife. I thank you for my children. I thank you for the safety on the road. I thank you that I woke up this morning. I heard the obituaries on the radio. And I thank you. No, the unsaved man doesn't think that way. God is not in his thoughts. All he's thinking about maybe is, are they going to increase my raise today? If there's a salesman, uh, what, how much could he sell God is not in his thoughts. He doesn't think transcendent thoughts about a God. He lives his daily life and God is not in his thoughts. Now I know one thing. I know one thing. If I were to take Robert's head right now and open his brain and it was possible for me to have some kind of special microscope to look into those brain cells, I can guarantee you this one person I was seeing there fairly regular. And if it's not so, you're in trouble. You would have to see Megan. When you love somebody, you have to think about them. If you think you love somebody and you don't think about them, you ain't got no love, bud. Call it what you will, you don't have it. And that's why the Bible said there's no thoughts of God in their minds. Man is ungodly. He's ungodly because he's unlike God. He's ungodly because he doesn't have any love for God. And then thirdly, I pointed out to you that man is ungodly in the sense that man has no respect and no reverence for God and the things of God. I had to put on a big lock or this, a new lock there and I got into trouble because I forgot to cut the keys. You know why I put on the lock there? I just saw on television a few weeks ago that the Seventh-day Adventist church over here had been broken in three times within one month. They stole the PS system, they stole the flat television screen. That's man for you. They make no distinction between your house and the house of God. Nothing is sacred from, for, for the man that is not saved. Look, he will come in here and sleep with a woman if he could. And it wouldn't bother him. It would not bother him 
one bit because this is just like any other house. This is nothing. This has nothing to do with God. There's no respect for God. That's the unsaved man for you. And by the way, I hope you recognize that we're getting cruder and cruder and cruder all the time. Some years ago in one of our church in uh, Paddock Road, somebody broke into church. And guess what they did? I think I told you this. They went on the communion table and pulled right on the communion table. I'm telling you. Pull right on the communion table. That is man without God. Without any respect, any reverence for God. No awe, no fear of God. That is man as he is in his sinful condition. Now the wonderful thing about it is that while we were like this, Christ died for us. Does that not overwhelm you? Does that not create a sense of awe? How could it be that he loved someone like me? See. Now Paul's point is, is when he loved me when I was in that condition. Now that he made me his child. How then would he break off his love and I be lost again? The overwhelming supreme love of God is one of the greatest proofs that we are secure and certain about our state before God. His love is so profound and so deep. And once you grasp this love, once you grasp it as it should be grasped, you now can sleep on a pillow not wondering what happened to more. Whether you raise or you not raise. That's the kind of confidence you can have in that God. That you're secure in him. And then the third thing I, I dealt with last time. We talked about also not only man's inability. Uh, not only the fact that man is ungodly. Which has to do with man's attitude. But then uh, in verse number 8. It said that man is a sinner. Which has to do with man's attainment. He is falling short of the glory of God. Could I say something about you tonight? If you don't know something about yourself. You are failure. I repeat. If you're an unsafe person sitting here in this church tonight, I want to burst your bubble by telling you, you are a failure. Well, Pastor Murphy, if you want people to come to church, you've got to tell them good things about themselves. That's called psychology. It's called pop psychology. It's called, talk, it's called positive thinking. You don't find that in the Bible. You don't come to church to feel good. You come to church to hear what God has to say about you. And what God says about you is not very pleasant. And he says that you're a failure. And you've got to humble yourself before God. If you're ever going to get into the kingdom, you've got to go to the... He said, you've got to, I'm going to go to I have You've got to humble yourself. God resists the proud and God gives grace to the humble. But I'm here to tell you tonight that if you're outside of Jesus Christ, you're a failure. He said, Pastor, how have I failed? Because the Bible says... You are a sinner. What does the word sinner mean? It means that you've missed the mark. You've missed the mark. It doesn't matter how close you come to the mark. 99.9%. You never come to the mark that God has said. And the mark is not me. It's not anybody here. It is Jesus Christ. How do you compare with him? Oh, pat yourself on the back because you know a brother or sister in the church who that you're far superior to. But when you put yourself in connection with Christ, you crumble then. 
Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us two examples that prove God loves us in a special way. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.